Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. It's very interesting that the new government in Israel has not, not yet taken office. There are voices in the United States and very prominent Jews who already are saying very negative things about Israel because of the composition of the new government. I said before in the last couple of weeks, and I say again, it is true that there are now members of the government that are about to be sworn in who have been known for their very radical right-wing comments. That's all true. But the fact remains they were voted into office by the Israelis because they have said things, particularly uh, with reference to defense of individual Israelis against terrorism, that struck the hearts of Israelis and they voted for them. If the fact remains that a right-wing party has been voted into Knesset along with the Likud, and the religious parties, of course, the religious parties can go in any direction. But the right-wing parties are now in office because of what's happening in the country. They didn't steal these positions. They were voted into office because the people here in Israel are worried about their individual safety. That's the bottom line, as I understand it. Now you have these people in other countries, particularly the United States, people in uh, very prominent positions in the Jewish and general community are saying things that I think are really, really run against the grain. For example, Abe Foxman is the uh, one of the most prominent Jews uh, in America, and he said that it would be difficult for him, for most diaspora Jews, to support Israel if these demands made by the religious parties are implemented. He said, and I quote, I never thought I would reach that point where I would say that my support of Israel is conditional. I've always said that my support of Israel is unconditional, but now it's conditional. I don't think it's a horrific condition to say, I love Israel, I want to live Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. It respects pluralism. And he concluded this by saying, I want Israel to be Jewish, absolutely, but I want it to be a democracy. In other words, it's very interesting. I remember, I'm old enough to remember, when the first government in Israel, even though they had elections, it really wasn't democratic. This country was run by the Mapai, the Labor Party. And there were people, even people who had fought to bring Israel into existence, who, and who were injured, by the way, and would not get compensation for their injuries in the war of uh, when Israel came into being because they belonged to right-wing parties. Israel was uh, it's a... Uh, it's a, a democracy, but it's a democracy that's limited. 
I remember when, if you didn't belong to the Labour Party, you had a, uh, a you you had a, you had to know somebody in the Labour Party to get a job. People forget that, but Jews around the world were so happy that there was a Jewish state after the Holocaust that they accepted any government as long as it was Jewish government. So the Israel is now approaching its 75th birthday. And uh, what has happened is that the um, Benjamin Netanyahu is about to make a government which a lot of liberals consider the most extreme government in the history of the state. But I think they're wrong because when I first came to Israel, it was extreme to the left. And now it's going to be extreme to the right. People forget that. So they, they accuse the parties of, uh, of, of being brought into government as being radical and racist and misogynist and homophobic and far right. Uh, that it, all right, I mean, we don't know how these parties are going to react when they have responsibility. And so all these Americans who didn't mind when there was a left-wing that they themselves would never live under. Capitalist Americans would never live under a socialist government where you only got a job if you knew someone. That didn't bother them. They were so happy to have a Jewish government. <coughs> now they have a Jewish government. They've become accustomed to it, and they seem to have forgotten what it was like without the Jewish government before there was an independent state. And now they're deciding whether they're going to support Israel based upon whether it's going to be too far to the right. Now, it's interesting, by the way, the very prominent Jews, very prominent Jews, like uh, Aaron David Miller, and the one-time U.S. ambassador to Israel, Daniel Kircher, penned a... Uh, uh, editorial in the Washington Post last night. The uh, and they they said and I I I quote what they said. They said the following: As Israel approaches its seventieth birthday next year, Benjamin Netanyahu has midwife the most extreme government in the history of the state, all in an effort to secure legislation to postpone the trial against him or cancel the indictment altogether, having brought to, uh, to life the radical, racist, misogynist, hemophobic, far-right parties, he's now stuck with them. He's cut a deal with convicted insider of hatred, uh, Itamar Ben-Vir, made a minister of national security with far-reaching authority for the West Bank, Jerusalem, and mixed Arab-Jewish cities. And Bitsalo Smutrich of the Religious Zionist Party has called for the expulsion of Arabs is in line to run the finance ministry with additional authority over the civil administration, which governs the West Bank. And Avi Maoz, who is the head of the Noam Party, proudly espouses a fierce anti-LGBTQ agenda. He's been made a deputy in the prime minister's office in charge of Jewish identity. Now, there's a lot of hyperbole here. So, uh, but the according to them, and I continue what they said, the coalition's agenda 
could be marked by increased settlement activity, land confiscation, violence by Israeli settlers against Palestinians, terrorist attacks against Israelis, efforts to change the status quo by legitimizing Jewish prayer on the Noble Sanctuary Temple Mount, and loosened rules regarding the use of force against both Palestinians in the West Bank and Arab citizens of Israel. The Palestinian terrorist groups are likely to intensify their attacks against Israel in the West Bank and uh, Israel proper, unquote. Now, that's a mouthful. The point is clear. These people, these American liberals, who pushed the peace process, the failed peace process for years, are trying to blame Israel in advance for all the ills that are about to befall Israel, including the murder of its, murder of its citizens. The, uh, and they also write in their article, at a minimum, uh, this, they're going to, it threatens to put the rest of the already moribund two-state solution. That's what they're right now. The Toulouse two-state solution was dead in the water. Two-state solution never existed because the Arab terrorist uh, Yasser Arafat and his friends didn't have in mind a two-state solution when they signed all those agreements. There's no two-state solution. Now, these people are suggesting that there might be violent confrontation between Israel and Palestinians in Jerusalem, between Israeli Jewish and Arab citizens, and between the Israeli military and Palestinians in the West Bank. Now, this is very interesting. There already is confrontation between Arabs and Israelis, and there was terrible confrontation last May in the mixed cities. They don't have to warn us that this will happen, because it happened already, and it wasn't the blame of the Jews. In the mixed cities like Lourdes and Haifa and a few other places, the Arabs attacked their neighbors. These are the facts the, on the ground. There are ongoing acts of aggression committed against Israeli citizens. And the, uh, according to Miller and Kurtzer, Washington has to adopt a series of punitive measures can keep it, to keep in check Netanyahu's democratically elected coalition with anti-democratic values inimical to U.S. interests. This is what these two prominent Jews are saying. And they went further. They said Israel should be told that while the United States will continue to support its allies' legitimate security requirements, it will not provide offensive weapons or other assistances to uh, from malign Israel actions in Jerusalem or the occupied territories. They talk about the occupied territories. That already gives away where they stand. In other words, when Jews try to defend themselves against rioters, this is action which these liberal American Jews don't agree that America should support. They also uh, they say that the Biden administration should make it clear to Israel that the administration will have no dealings with Ben Gvir, Smutrich, or their ministries if they continue to espouse racial uh, policies and actions. The, uh, the interesting, though, they they claim these two liberal Americans 
that American backing for the Jewish state in international forums, including UN Security Council and the International Court of Justice, has its limits. And Israel should know that the Biden administration will be on the alert for Israeli actions that deserve to be called out and condemned. So the most radical leftist and anti-Semitic elements of the Democratic Party could not have articulated better than these two Jews. These people are paragons of virtue signaling, and you can't take them to task, however, when Israel's soon-to-be opposition politicians have pretty much been saying the same thing. Now, what Israeli politicians say, that's one thing, but they have recognized Americans who push for the two-state solution and are so-called uh, theoreticians and know what's best for Israel. It's, it's very sad. It really is. The fact of the matter is, the very fact they, they talk about the two-state solution, we know now, uh, we started with the two-state solution back in 1994, the, the, the two-state solution is delusional. The, uh, the bottom line is Israel's existence. The uh, Netanyahu and his partners were elected, among other reasons, for their cognizance of this fact that people in Israel want to feel safe. If you, in, As I said, uh, I wrote a letter to the uh, Jerusalem Post recently, and uh, I, I, I wrote in my letter that I uh, did a survey, an unofficial survey, against the two groups and people who are the ones you really go to if you want to know what people think. That's the taxi drivers and the people who uh, who are vendors in the shuk in the uh, public market. These are the people you go to if you want to know what the average Israeli is really thinking. And I found, for example, and among these people, and again, of course, this is an unofficial survey taken by me. I spoke to about 10 people, quite quite honestly. And they, these are people who have all voted for the Likud in the past. None of the people that I spoke to was uh, religious in the sense they didn't wear, wear a head covering. I can't judge somebody's religious uh, religion himself. I'm sure that they're, they're kind to their mothers and they don't beat up on orphans, so I'm never quite sure what the word religious means. At any rate, you speak to these people, and they say, look what happened in the city of Lud, where Arabs turned against their Jewish neighbors, attacked them, burned their apartments. This is something that Israelis can't live with. And as, that is why most of these people who are centrist or even left, and certainly right, voted now for these other parties, although traditionally they voted for Likud, because they want personal safety. Without personal safety, nothing else is important. So to have these uh, well-known American Jews say that Israel, Israel should be denied uh, weaponry from the United States unless they're sure it's going to be used in the way that they like, that is really traitorous against the Jewish people. Again, as I said at the beginning, when I first uh, 
<laughs> when uh, I was a kid, Israel first came into being. People left, right, center, religious, non-religious, uh, irreligious, they all were happy to see a Jewish state, even though the state was held in the grip of a left-wing party that saw to it that were members of the party had jobs and things of that nature, but they, they were so happy to have a Jewish state, they didn't care about the details. Now, 70 years later, more sophisticated, and they decide if they don't like the politics in Israel, they're not going to support Israel anymore. That makes no sense whatsoever. It really does not. If you're uh, supportive of Israel, we, I don't have to tell the listeners what Israel has done. Uh, the fact that it's, uh, you know, a high-tech country and all that, the fact that it's taken in thousands upon thousands of Jews who were kicked out of other, other countries. The, I don't have to tell the listeners the history of Israel. The fact that the people in, uh, in positions of uh, responsibility or uh, popular in the United States say that the, the uh, support of Israel is conditional on Israel being the kind of country, if they want, a liberal left-wing, democratic. By the way, I've said this before, Israel is not a full democracy in the real sense. When you go to vote in Israel, you don't vote for an individual. You vote for a party list. This is in itself is not democratic. When you vote for a party list, list you're, you're choosing up to 100 people names, most of which you don't even know who they are. So the electoral system in Israel leaves a lot. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not what I think we as a, as a former American uh, would consider really democratic. But it is a Jewish country and the first Jewish country in 2,000 years. And we want it to be safe. And now to have prominent people say their support of Israel is conditional on the kind of government they have, that is simply wrong. And uh, it's wrong for several reasons, not the least of which is we still don't know how this new government will act. It hasn't taken office yet. And I'm sure I would be very surprised if all these people have said all kind of weird things when they're running for office, if once they're in, in government, once they're in power, once they have responsibility, I'm sure that they will rationalize their situations. That is what happens in general. There are very few exceptions in history. I'm not a historian, but in my own time, the, the major thing I can think of uh, is Nazi Germany. They said terrible things before they came into power, and once they were in power, they indeed implemented the terrible things that they said. Most uh, countries, once they, someone or, or politicians get into power, they modify be, their, uh, their uh, actions because many of them uh, are in coalition governments or, or they see how the people are reacting to their uh, policies. And I'm sure, I, I say before all these American liberals, Jewish liberals say that they're not going to support Israel, I strongly suggest that instead of going public in, in newspapers like uh, the New York Times, 
they wait and see what actually happens. Only when the Israeli government, the new government, takes office, and if they don't like the actions, they can criticize the actions. That's legitimate. But to say they won't support Israel, because at the moment there are some right-wing parties, that simply does not make sense. And the truth of the matter is, it's very un-Jewish. You have to support the Jewish state, the only one that came into existence after 2,000 years. And if you really don't like the government, I suggest you come on Aliyah and vote vote it out of office. That's also a possible solution. Anyhow, I got that off my chest. I'll be back after the break. Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is a radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about uh, two subjects that uh, are very closely related. One is anti-Semitism, which is uh, mankind's most ancient plague. And the other is Holocaust denial, which is something which has come up after the Second World War. Anti-Semitic rhetoric in the United States, according to those who analyze the subject, is reaching what they call a tipping point in the United States. The prevalence of anti-Jewish rhetoric over the past half year, as well as a number of high-profile anti-Semitic incidents, are unlike the anti-Semitic milieu in Europe, the Middle East, or elsewhere. For example, in Europe, Jewish institutions like synagogues and schools have often been surrounded by security guards, and Jews have been uh, targeted, particularly by Islamic groups. They've been targeted by far-left extremists and neo-Nazi-style anti-Semitism. All this is true in Europe. However, according to the people who Uh, are writing about this subject, in the United States, the situation is different. The recent news stories about former U.S. President Donald Trump meeting with people who made anti-Semitic comments and the way this is becoming mainstream in the media is considered to be a disturbing trend. The rise of openly anti-Semitic rhetoric in the U.S. is taking place as a new presidential election cycle begins. It is also happening on social media and in other formats. While it's true that major media outlets and most people appear to reject this anti-Semitic rhetoric, but it is also true that millions of people are being exposed to it much more than in the past. Now, there was a fellow named Kanye West, 
and the anti-Semitic rhetoric surrounding his recent statements, for instance, has now become a near 24-hour media cycle for two months. It's hard to imagine a more dangerous time for the rhetoric to become mainstream and to reach a tipping point. Now, what is a tipping point? A tipping point is defined as what happens when a series of small changes or incidents become significant enough to cause a large, more important change. I have a book on the subject of tipping point that was written about 20 years ago. And what what essentially says is a lot of small things happen and you sort of don't notice them. But all of a sudden they, they become significant enough to cause a more important change. So with this in mind, let's look at some of the series of small events that are happening in America that may contribute to this tipping point, the point at which it goes over into something much more serious. In New York City, there are anti-Semitic physical assaults on Jews, assaults on Jews every week, according to reports. The Anti-Defamation League, the ADL, said that there was a 24% increase in incidents in this year compared to 2020, just a year and a half ago. Now, there were 416 incidents in 2021. Now, we're talking about the city of New York, 416 incidents. Not all of these are physical assaults. However, New York leads the country in attacks on Jews. New York is supposed to be a liberal, democratic, diverse city run for many years until 2021 by a left-leaning mayor, Bill de Blasio. So why were there more assaults last year than ever recorded in the city of New York? Why are Jews being attacked in New York every week? The Jewish community was the target of more than half of all religious bias crimes in 2021, according to the FBI. This means that half of all hate crimes targeting religious groups target Jews. And yet, Jews make up only a very small percent of the U.S. population, less than 3% of adults. I'm not quite sure what percent Jews make up in the city of New York. It's more than 3%, but it's certainly not a really large number. So we are generally conditioned to accept this as not as uh, normal in America. An assault a week in New York, a killing here and there, swastikas from time to time, all of that is considered normal today. No other minority group is subject to such systematic attacks and hatred as Jews are, or per capita are subject to hate crimes far more than any other group. That's in general. It's been that way for quite a while. 
The mainstreaming of hatred of Jews is part of the story here. There are no protests in New York or anywhere else against hate crimes against Jews. Groups can openly parade down streets in New York shouting anti-Semitic slogans and people are told to keep quiet. In late November, the Jerusalem Post reported that hundreds of followers of the Black Hebrew Israelite movement marched through New York City in support of basketball player Kyrie Irving, who returned from suspension after he had shared a link on social media to a documentary that advocates their theological claims that people of African descent are the real Jews. Uh, according to an article in the Jewish Telegraphic Authority, uh, he shared a link to Hebrews to Negroes, Wake Up Black America, a 2018 film that contains a host of anti-Semitic tropes and it's based on a book that no doubt, thanks to Irving, is now a bestseller. It's a black Hebrew book, and it's essentially anti-Semitic. In an incident in Arizona, far away from New York, a graduate student murdered a professor after making anti-Semitic threats. The threats were previously known and reported, but not enough was done to avoid yet another deadly campus shooting. Uh, again and again, it seems that authorities don't take these threats seriously. So the main tipping point comes due to the amplification of these views in major traditional media and social media. For example, Twitter has now suspended Kanye West's Twitter account which had 32 million followers. This comes after he appeared on a far-right website and praised Hitler. One video of the appearance on this show has received more than 2 million views on Twitter. West, who is now called Yeah, Y-E, has posted a star of David a Swastika Insider on Twitter before being suspended. Now, news about West and his activities was one of the top trending topics on CNN's website last Saturday. The new cycle of anti-Semitism has been flooding people's homes with anti-Jewish views for several months now. Whenever a celebrity makes anti-Semitic comments, they are then amplified by media, and there are numerous interviews. You know, it's difficult not to see a pattern here. According to a report in The Hill, Yeah, the artist formerly known as Kanye West, made several anti-Semitic remarks in unaired portions of his recent interview with Fox News host Tucker Carlson. But that wasn't the only major interview. Throughout October and November, numerous hosts on various media sought out, sought out the controversy of interviewing someone who would say controversial anti-Semitic things. In other words, there are people who pick up what the anti-Semites say, anti say, 
and they multiply it by interviewing and reviewing them again. The tipping point comes because today, anti-Semitism is considered a cool thing that radio hosts and media people to want to have on their show in order to get maximum ratings and clicks. The reason we're seeing a tipping point is because media isn't rushing to interview people with homophobic or other types of racist views. There is only one group whose hatred they want to amplify, and that is the anti-Semites. Of course, they are against anti-Semitism. They say they're against anti-Semitism. However, the most controversial anti-Semitic rhetoric is being amplified daily. How many millions of people are being exposed to this anti-Semitism or are now beginning to think that the usual filters they might have can be taken off? In other words, anti-Semitism and interviewing anti-Semites has become more common in the last six months. And uh, that is something which is ex very frightful, something we didn't know of before, and it's something that is now reaching what is called a tipping point. Tipping point meaning it is now becoming common, and therefore it is something to be accepted. So anti-Semitism is now being accepted because it's being brandished by all kinds of people who are popular in other areas, all kind of actors and, uh, and other uh, celebrities are anti-Semitic and their words are being broadcast over and over again until they become the common language. And this is something which is extremely, extremely dangerous. In other words, anti-Semitism in the United States has reached a tipping point. And again, a tipping point is defined as what happens when a series of small changes or incidents become significant enough to cause a larger, more important change. And that is what happening now is celebrity-sponsored anti-Semitism, and it's something that has to be watched. Now, I want to go over, uh, since uh, I'm already at uh, the 14th minute of this 20-minute segment, I want to change the subject. There are other things that I want to talk about at length that I don't have time in the few minutes left, so I'll take a few other subjects. Another subject, which is actually it's related to the one I just spoke about, anti-Semitism, uh, it turns out, uh, that uh, New York Mayor Eric Adams the, uh, has been touting the coordination between the Jewish community and law enforcement agencies in New York in preventing a deadly anti-Semitic attack last month. The uh, last uh, uh, couple weeks ago, there was a 2022 Mayor's Summit against anti-Semitism. It took place in Athens, Athens last week, and speaking at the opening of the uh, meeting, 
uh, Adams, the mayor of New York, recapped last week's threat in which two men threatened in social media to destroy synagogues and to shoot Jews. The mayor said that what many people missed is that due to a Jewish organization that was monitoring the social media channels and the chatter, they were able to give an early warning sign to connect with the law enforcement community. We are able to span out and not and to not only get to the firearms that they were going to use, but to get the two individuals who were involved. That's the coalition and coordination that we need. There, it's interesting, the New York mayor said this at a meeting that was attended by over 50 mayors and municipal leaders from across the globe. So here they were at a meeting of mayors talking about anti-Semitism in cities, lamenting the increase in the popularity of anti-Semitism. The New York mayor used an analogy of a boiling pot for anti-Semitism. He said the temperature is increasing ever so slightly that we allowed it to normalize in every part of our lives. We become accustomed to it. It's become popular. Social media is the flames that continue to fuel the hatred that you are seeing. <coughs> Those who are perpetrating hate should not have 5 million followers on social media when those who stand up for what is right only have 100,000 followers. They have organized to a level that is so dangerous at this time. By the way, the president of Greece spoke about the tools needed to combat anti-Semitism. Again, I did, uh, what, I, what I said at the beginning of the program, that anti-Semitism has reached a tipping point. And the uh, Greek president said at a time when anti-Semitism is growing worldwide, it's our moral duty to turn memory daily, memory daily into action, to cultivate historical knowledge, to reflect on the causes that give birth to Nazism, racism, anti-Semitism, all kinds of racial, religious, and social prejudice. The mayor of Athens uh, spoke about his city's recent past connection to the neo-Nazi Golden Dawn Party in Greece and how it should be a stark warning to others around the world. The event is not just an act of reflection, but also a generator of transformative transformative action. The engine of evil is picking up. The threat of intolerance, hate, and anti-Semitism is just an election away. Tolerance, empathy, and respect begins at home. In our communities, our towns, and our cities, at the grassroots, the summits like this where we discuss anti-Semitism with mayors from all around the world provide a valuable opportunity to share and learn from each other's experience in building more tolerant and resilient societies. Now, it turns out 
Golden Lords, Dawn, something I think most of my listeners never heard of. I never heard about it until I saw this article. It's a far-right neo-fascist ultranational political organization in Greece. Many of its leaders and members were convicted for criminal acts. So those mayors who participated in this meeting uh, were mayors from all around the world, particularly in Europe. The uh, the summit of these mayors who was held in partnership with the Combat Anti-Semitism Movement Center for Jewish Impact and Jewish Federations North America. So this conference in Greece was unprecedented and vital. It is unprecedented because they have never had so many local and municipal leaders in one place sharing practices, learning how each from each other how to fight Jew hatred. Anti-Semitism is increasing all over the world, so it's vital the authorities closest to the ground are on the front lines of combating anti-Semitism and fostering greater coexistence. This is really important. I was not aware of it until I saw it in the paper. I think it's important that mayors are getting together to discuss how to fight anti-Semitism. And I think this is, this is something that didn't get big headlines, but I think it's really important. That's why I mentioned it on the program. I'll be back after the break. Hello, I am Walter Bingham. If you want to hear the news behind the news and the true perspective on world affairs, then the Walter Bingham File is the program for you. We bring you interviews with the movers and shakers, political commentaries, and on-the-spot reports of events as they happen. All here every Tuesday, 4 p.m. Israel Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. And it's all archived on our website. Make it a date. Hey y'all, I'm Chelsea and I was born and raised in Cajun country in the heartland of Louisiana. Listening to Israel News Talk Radio has broadened my horizons way past the rice fields. Hi, this is Gordon from Southern Indiana. I'm listening to IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Hello, this is Hank Poach from the Netherlands. We love Israel and we love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and I said want to say a few words about a subject that doesn't want to go away, and that is the subject of Holocaust denial. And in particular, I want to say a few words about Holocaust denial in the United States. The minority of the American senator, the Senate, Republican Mitch McConnell of Kentucky has condemned former President Donald Trump for meeting with a gentleman named Nicholas Fuentes, who's a figure described by the Anti-Defamation League, the the ADL, as a white supremacist leader rebuked for jokingly denying the Holocaust. I have to admit, I never heard of this guy Fuentes till I saw this article in the paper. The U.S. senator stated there's no room in the Republican Party for anti-Semitism or white supremacy. And anyone meeting with people advocating that point of view, in my judgment, are highly unlikely to ever be elected president of the United States. 
Now, essentially, uh, this was McConnell making, uh, responding to what Trump had done. McConnell's not known to be a friend of Trump, but now he has anti-Semitism as a strike against him also. Now, uh, Trump claimed he never heard of this guy Fuentes before the meeting. He had no idea about his anti-Semitic views. Now, this might be true. Nonetheless, a, a world leader like Trump, before he meets with anybody, has a responsibility to inform himself in advance about any issues uh, surrounding this person he's about to meet. Uh, that is something I think that what one's advisor should tell him about. Now, it's interesting. Scholar, scholars have highlighted, highlighted the fact that prior to his election as president, Republican Dwight D. Eisenhower, he was elected back in 1952. Now, I remember that myself. Before that, he was the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, and then he was the military governor in Germany. And he had anticipated future attempts to recharacterize Nazi crimes as propaganda. In other words, General Eisenhower did something extremely bright. He said, history is going to change. People are going to forget what bad things were done. So let's get them on the record now. The uh, a um, historian named Benjamin Runkle searched uh, Eisenhower's history and his legacy as it pertains to Jewish matters and he and this historian Runkel described clearly how Eisenhower was no was the primary driver behind the memorialization of the Holocaust. In other words, he took it upon himself, Eisenhower did, to see to it that the Holocaust is not for, forgotten. There was another historian who passed away a few years ago in Israel named Robert Wistrich, and he defined the Holocaust denial as, and I quote, a post-war phenomenon at whose core lies the rejection of the historical fact that six million Jews were murdered by the Nazis and their friends during World War II. Alongside explicit repudiation of the Holocaust, denial includes the minimization, banalization, and relativization of the relevant facts and events so as to cast doubt on the uniqueness or authenticity of what happened during the Shoah. Unquote. In other words, what this um, historian Wistrich was saying is it would be the uh, Holocaust was as such a uh, a uh, historical of uh, uniqueness that it must be remembered for what it was. Not it's not just simple hate, not simple anti-Semitism. The Holocaust was an attempt to destroy the Jewish people. So uh, there's also a an Israeli historian named Yehuda Bauer. I've read a few of his books. 
He wrote in debt on a phenomenon known as Holocaust revisionism. Now he mapped out the ongoing stubborn process which many different European, Middle Eastern American self-proclaimed experts tried to manipulate and reconstruct the deeds of the Nazis and their helpers. This historian Bauer describes, for example, as some exclaimed that rogue agents within the German apparatus are to blame for the Holocaust. But others assert that the figures of the tortured and murders and murdered victims have been exaggerated. In other words, what they say is no, it wasn't the Nazi. It wasn't a Nazi program to annihilate the Jews. It was some few radical Nazis who did it, but not the Nazi movement per se. And this is an attempt at a historical denial. Now, the. Uh, there are uh, many of these deniers of the uniqueness of the Holocaust go so far as to argue that the Holocaust didn't exist at all, and it's no more than a Zionist hoax. Of considerable concern, while the original dissemination of such denial has been the work of fringe anti-Semites, there has been expressed interest by an increasingly number of people, small number, but increasingly growing, of academically educated, intellectual, and political figures willing to participate in, in this unholy endeavor of denying or minimizing the Holocaust. Equally alarming, there's been a call within certain Westerns, even liberal circles, to criticize what they deem a one-sided account of the Holocaust and of Hitler's regime. The, the, um, the, there are those who believe that the Holocaust denial has been part of a spreading trend due to the incomprehensibility for many of the Holocaust itself. In other words, the fact that the Germans set out to kill every Jew in the world is something that people find incomprehensible, and therefore they listen to the Holocaust deniers, because the facts themselves are so beyond belief that people simply don't want to believe them. That's what happens. So, this lack of comprehension and the need for palpable and accepted explanations gives way to the fabrication of the Holocaust's limited scope, its alleged true perpetrators, or even its non-existence. Some of these people say either there was no Holocaust or else it was much smaller than the evidence seemed to claim, or they say that the people who did it were just a few uh, radicals within the Nazi party and their helpers. It's very inco almost incomprehensible to believe an entire nation, a civilized nation like Germany, would set itself to destroy a people. But that is what they did. A lot of people find this incomprehensible. Now, the, the local legislatures in Texas, for example, 
have recently drafted and approved that something called the House Bill 3979 and a um, another a follow-up bill called the Texas, Texas Senate Bill 3. These relate to our current events or controversial issues of public policy or social affairs should be discussed in official educational forums and reflected in school curriculums. Now, what are the um, legislature trying to do in Texas and a few other states? The hope of the legislature is that teachers will strive to explore issues from diverse and contending perspectives without giving the deference to any one perspective. In, uh, one perspective. Now, on the face of it, this sounds kind of reasonable. Let's discuss a historical fact from all angles. That's what this law is saying. So it sounds sort of uh, not bad. Unfortunately, the topic of the Holocaust has already been subject to scrutiny. The, uh, as a matter of fact, it was reported in October uh, a year ago that Texas officials orders teachers to present opposing views on the Holocaust. In other words, the Holocaust is no longer presented as a fact. They're talking about opposing views. The uh, teaching history under such a law would diminish the understanding of Nazi Germany as inherently anti-Semitic. Due to the continued necessity for educational media in an effort to confront falsehoods regarding the scale or even the existence of the Holocaust, numerous multi-episode documentaries are being produced and broadcast on significantly important publicly funded channels. <clears throat> in other words, with the people who are starting to become aware that Holocaust denial has become a real phenomenon. So now this year, to mark the 60th anniversary of the execution of Adolf Eichmann, and Adolf Eichmann, you'll recall, who was the Nazi official chiefly responsible for for implementing what they called the Final Solution, a um, television station in Israel, Khan 11, aired a new series called Eichmann, The Devil Speaks. And this program, this series, brings to light important documentation of Eichmann's admission of his guilt when he was on trial here in Israel. The series focuses on recordings of interviews between Eichmann and a, a Dutch journalist, who also happened to be a Nazi, by the way, by the name of William Sassen, back in the late, late 1950s. These uh, recordings, their audio, can contradict Eichmann's denial regarding his own involvement at the highest levels of planning and executing Hitler's plan to wipe out Europe's Jews. Now, it's interesting, apparently, from the dating of this interview with this Nazi uh, Dutchman, apparently, I, this was before Eichmann was captured by the Israelis, 
being interviewed by a Dutch Nazi, he told a lot of the truth of what he later denied about his involvement in the murder of Europe's Jews. Now, there's also an American documentarian named Ken Burns, and they've completed a three-episode series on PBS entitled The United States and the Holocaust. And this series examines America's response to one of the greatest humanitarian crises of the 20th century, and essentially this program calls for a reckoning with the possibility that the American nation failed to live up to its ideals as a nation of immigrants. In other words, over the years, a lot of what was done by the American president and anti-Semites in the State Department to deny the Holocaust and deny Jews the chance to escape, more information about this phenomenon is becoming available from various sources. So this series is, as it says, it sets to deeply, delve deeply into the tragic human consequences of public indifference, bureaucratic red tape, and restrictive quota laws in the United States. Interesting, the, the um, description of this series doesn't use the word anti-Semitism in the United States. It talks about bureaucratic red tape. But the truth of the matter is, as I understand it from what I've read, the bureaucratic red tape was in, engendered by anti-Semitism, particularly in the American State Department. Now, in other words, not only are the horrors of the Holocaust undeniable, the lack of adequate response by the United States in particular may be unjustifiable, and the, and the, uh, the actions of the American government under uh, Roosevelt were simply wrong when they knew the facts. The, uh, there's an American historian named uh, Oscar Handlin, H-A-N-D-L-I-N. He's done a lot of studies on immigration to the United States. And he once wrote that the use of history lies in its capacity for advancing the approach to truth. In other words, why do you study history? Because you want to know where the truth lies in history. The, while remarking on the measure of truth in history, a contemporary Jewish historian named Abraham Halkin proclaimed that it is every human's duty to accept truth as it is revealed and not as it is fashioned. In today's climate, the uh, I think any real scholar would dismiss any notion of alternative facts. As I said, the state of uh, of uh, Texas is going to offer a platform for alternative facts. The truth of the matter is, in the case of the Holocaust, there are no alternative facts. So, um, interesting, interesting, incidentally, 
There are strategies devised several years ago by American educators. There's one called the Paperclip Project. It was uh, first implemented in a middle school in Tennessee, of all places, a place called the Whitwell Middle School. I think it was about three or four years ago. I remember seeing a report on television. The uh, What happened was the principal, a woman named Linda Hooper, and her team began a Holocaust education class in Tennessee that would be the basis for teaching tolerance and diversity in a voluntary after-school programs. <clears throat> now, the students in this school in Tennessee are mostly white, mostly Christian. They struggled to grasp the concept and enormity of the six million Jews who died during the Holocaust. So what did they decide to do? Something really unbelievable. They decided to collect six million paper clips, one for each soul who perished. They, uh, since then, that school in Tennessee dedicated a children's Holocaust memorial, which includes an authentic German rail car filled with a portion of the more than 30 million paper clips that they eventually collected. Most recently, the teacher in that school has been vocal in her response to the attempted removal of uh, books regarding the Holocaust from the curriculum. The uh, What happened is the Tennessee uh, School Board wanted to uh, do away with books involving the Holocaust, and she herself, a Christian woman, opposed such a move. In doing so, this woman, name is Hooper, explains we owe the young victims of the Holocaust and atrocities everywhere our commitment to this understanding. So hopefully, thanks to the hard work of scholars and the skilled art of the documentarians and passion of, of educators who are really humanitarian like this woman in Tennessee, no America will choose to be complicit in the extermination of the memory of those victims. I want to touch upon a number of topics that are not related. I'll just say a few words about each one. There are things that are perhaps under the headlines, and I want the listeners to be aware of them. Uh, first of all, I want to quote a few people who said things about the new Israeli government, which, by the way, has still not taken office. Uh, someone said, if Israel ceases to be an open democracy, I won't be able to support it. This was said by the former head of the Anti-Defamation League, who was the national director. His name is Avis Foxman. And that's what he told a reporter in an interview that appeared last Friday. Now, also, another American leader said the following, there is no way that younger American Jews will feel what we want them to feel about Israel if Israel annexes the West Bank, if it overturns the independence of the judicial system, if it deports Arab Israelis so they consider disloyal to the state, if Israel is represented by Kahanists, 
They want to change the law of return and to disqualify non-Orthodox converts if Israel decide to abolish the grandfather clause and if its leaders are deeply homophobic and deeply opposed to the LGBT community, then we have a problem. Who said that? This is a U.S. reform leader, Rabbi Amiel Hirsch. He also had an interview in which he said that. Now, Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, spoke to a Jewish group, a left-wing Jewish group, at the National J Street Conference last week. Uh, he articulated well-known U.S. policy in favor of a two-state solution and against unilateral steps that could make that solution more difficult. Incidentally, uh, before I continue uh, quoting Blinken, it's interesting when they talk about a two-state solution, essentially they avoid saying anything about the fact that the head of the Palestinian Authority is essentially a terrorist leader who pays people who perform terrorism against Israel. They seem to look away about what this two-state solution really is going to be composed of. If the leadership of the Palestinian Authority is given a state, it will be a terrorist state on Israel's borders. So why they still talk about the two-state solution is something which I simply cannot understand. There is no two-state solution. Apparently never was, because all the agreements that Arafat made 30 years ago they're all a delusion to get the, the uh, Arafat and his terrorists back from North Africa and give them a certain amount of control here in our homeland. So the two-state solution, why they keep speaking about it, I, I just don't, I don't find it rational. Anyhow, so uh, now, now the uh, Blinken, the Secretary of State, said all the proper things I, you can you can say, and um, he and also the U.S. ambassador to the states, I'm sorry, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, Tom Nides, have been making statements since the election, and Nides said that it's, and I quote, it's too early to speculate on the exact composition of the next governing coalition until all the votes are counted. I look forward to continuing to work with the Israeli government with our shared interests and values. In other words, the government has not yet been uh, sworn in, and there are people making all types of all times of uh, all kinds of extremist uh, comments about how they will react to the government, which hasn't come into being administration. Now, the Biden administration has stuck to a neutral line. And it's done so even some of the personalities who make up the next government are obviously not to the American administration's liking. The administration of the, Amer the American administration might not like to deal with Ben Gvir or Smotrich. They might, might not even want to deal with them at all. Yet, the U.S. government has not jumped the gun and castigated the government warned of its destruction of U.S. Israeli ties 
and talked about, spoken of an irreparable rift between Israel and the American Jewish community. The American, the American government has not made any statements of that kind, although a number of Jewish leaders have. <coughs> Jewish leaders like Foxman, like Hirsch, and prominent Jews, which I quoted earlier, such as Daniel Kircher and Aaron uh, uh, David Miller, they wrote an article in the Washington Post last week in light of the election results advising the Biden, Biden administration to tell Israel that while the United States will continue to support its allies' legitimate security requirements, it will not provide offensive weapons or other assistance for malign Israeli actions in Jerusalem or the occupied territories. Very interesting, by the way, how these Jewish leaders, the guys who make the big salaries as Jewish leaders, use all these adjectives like malign Israeli actions Action, occupied territories, and so forth. In other words, they're suggesting that if they don't like Israel's policies, the United States, they pressure the United States not to give Israel the uh, weapons needed to defend itself. These are people who have made a living out of, out of the Jewish community all their lives, and now they're telling Israel, essentially, if you don't do what we tell you, then you don't deserve to exist. We should have support for you taken away, and you should become defenseless. That's what it really amounts to, if you think about it. Now, now it's unlikely that American uh, officials like Nides or Blinken are any less concerned about the possible policies of a right-wing government in Israel and its relationship with the U.S. and U.S. jury. They're certainly the American officials are no less concerned than any of these so-called Jewish leaders. However, they are diplomats who realize that it is counterproductive to come up with all kinds of criticisms of a government for things it hasn't even done yet, nor has it even been formed yet. So maybe the reality of government will make some of the ministers more pragmatic. I tend to believe that is true. Maybe they may realize once in office that slogans shouted in opposition are not implementable for various reasons. Maybe, as Netanyahu said in an interview on NBC about a week ago, he does indeed have a record of having two hands on the wheel and will not allow the implementation of any policy that would lead to a rift with the United States or a rift with American Jewry. But apparently only so-called Jewish leaders in the States cannot wait. They're blasting the incoming government based on the past statements of some ministers and painting up apocalyptic scenarios even before the government has held, has held a single meeting. The government in Israel is being formed, has not come into existence yet, and is being blasted by American so-called Jewish leaders. Foxman, for example, said if Israel becomes a fundamentalist theocratic state, they're not going to have relationships with my grandchildren. That's very sad. Now you have to ask yourself, really, does Foxman 
really believe that this country is going to turn into Iran? Really? <coughs> Foxman said he never thought he would reach a point where I would say my support of Israel is conditional. I've always said that my support is unconditional, but now it's conditional. I want Israel to be Jewish, absolutely, but I want it to be a democracy. Does he really believe that Israel's on the verge of losing its democratic character, that the people will allow it to do so? Instead, exaggerated words such as these seem to warn Israelis that they're meant to warn Israelis of the consequences if their government takes specific steps. Some Israelis may hear these dire predictions and think to themselves, wow, the government better not make any changes in law in return or undertake any judicial reform because it does means we'll lose American Jewry. And that apparently is the fact that the so-called American Jewish leaders want to have on Israelis. However, that's only one side of the coin. Other Israelis may hear these words and say that if his diaspora jury support for Israel is conditional, then Israel's support for diaspora communities can also be conditional. Israel, they may argue, will stand firmly with those communities that support and stand by it, but those who do not, well, if they don't ever get in trouble and need Israel's backing and support, it might not be there. Keep in mind that we have a two-way street, not only with the American government. We say, like, the American government provides Israel with um, a lot of uh, weapons. That's true. Israel improves those weapons and gives back to the United States the improvements that these weapons have now in them. I noticed because I worked in the aircraft industry and I, I worked together myself personally, a lot of Americans, and we've made tremendous improvements in American equipment provided to us and gave those improvements back to the Americans. It really is a two-way street. It's not a one-way street. <coughs> the same thing is true of the Jewish community. Because of a lack of education, uh, a serious blunder by the American Jewish community for many years, which they're trying to make up for, uh, the, the, they lost, they lost uh, untold numbers of Jews who were simply not educated and didn't know what it meant to be Jewish. And, and uh, Israel is sending teachers to the diaspora. As a matter of fact, I live here in... Uh, in Jerusalem, and there are dozens and dozens of buses full of American kids who were brought here to have a feeling of what it means to be Jewish, to what it means to have a Jewish state. Israel is providing a source of support for the American Jewish youth. You don't hear much about it if you're not involved, but it's a, it is a major thing. So any kind of... Uh, of uh, statements by American so-called Jewish leaders who, who make their support of Israel conditional is simply wrong. I remember, when I'm old enough to remember, that when the state of Israel came into being, it was run by socialists. 
It was a really a socialist country as most of us in the United States were not aware of how the, a socialist government treated it, uh, those who didn't agree with it. If you get a good get some good books about the history of Israel, then you'll see that there are people, right-wing people, for example, who belong to Kherut and the right-wing underground who, uh, who lost their lives uh, or who were injured during the war for independence, and they didn't get any compensation whatsoever because they belonged to the wrong party. There were a lot of things not so good about the government in Israel when the state first came into being because it was run by socialists and a certain attitude toward things. But the American Jewish community, capitalist as could be, supported it, but they was happy to have a Jewish state. Times have changed, and now we have so-called American Jewish leaders saying that their support of Israel is conditional. Now, obviously, I I personally want this to be a uh, a liberal government, you know, a tolerant government. But um, I mean, I live here, and I and uh, my, I have served in the army here. My grand my children, my grandchildren served, and will serve under a government that's a Jewish government, even though we don't agree with all its policies. That's that we we've been through that all 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 our lives, probably true in any democratic country. We're now being told that that the support of Israel is conditional on whether the American Jewish leadership agrees with the politics here. That is simply something that should not be said. That type of talk is destructive. It undermines Jewish solidarity. And Jewish solidarity is important both to Israel and to the communities in the diaspora. Talk of conditional conditionality should be used very sparingly, and not before the government has actually done something or done anything. The government hasn't taken office yet, and all these conditions are being set by the so-called American Jewish the Jewish leadership on whether they will support the government. Now, if the government, for example, annexes Judea and Samaria, if it overturns the judicial system's independence, and deport uh, Arab Israelis, as, as Rabbi Hirsch warned, he can scream bloody murder about these policies. But is it wise to do so before anything has happened? That's what's very interesting. That uh, you know, all these terrible warnings are coming coming from the American Jewish leadership, uh, or I, I I think leadership might be a wrong word. People, uh, well-known people in the American Jewish community, giving all these warnings before, before anything has actually happened. Now, obviously, very obviously, Israelis hear these words, they hear these warnings, but the Israelis who voted this government into power, and I have my own complaints about the upcoming government, that's a story unto itself, but... Uh, the uh, if Israelis hear these words and hear these warnings, but uh, they may not be drawing the conclusions that these uh, heads of the American Jewish community want to, to draw about Israeli policies. According to these people, Israeli policies could 
drive American Jews away from Israel. But the words of diaspora Jewish leaders about the conditionality of the relationship drove the distance Israeli Jews from feelings of brotherhood with the diaspora. This is a two-way street. And none of this does the Jewish people any good. So uh, the bottom line is, to sum up what I said in a lot of words, American Jewish so-called leaders, by the way, uh, I, you know, uh, it interests me how many Jewish people in the American Jewish community know even who these leaders are. Uh, these people lead some major Jewish organizations. They get a lot of headlines. They got a lot of big salaries and so forth. Could well be that uh, a majority of American Jews wouldn't even know their names, don't recognize their names when they see them. But that's immaterial. These are the people who represent the Jewish community to other authorities, to the U.S. government, for example. So you have all these people saying that if they don't like the way the uh, the Jewish uh, government here in uh, Israel acts, then they're going to withdraw their support. What, now, when I, when I really think about, I want to share, I want to share this gut feeling with the listeners. You know, Jews are, in a sense, a family. You might have a lot of people in your family you don't really care about. A lot of them you don't even know who they are, but they're your family. It's interesting, like when Jews are in trouble. Anywhere in the world, look what uh, American Jewry and look what Israeli Jewry did for Russian Jewry. Didn't know who these people were. Go back uh, 30, 40 years and see the struggle for the freedom of Russian Jewry. It was undertaken by people who didn't know those Jews in Russia who they were trying to save, and they did save. You save Jews and you work for Jews because they're your brothers. That is what it means, I think, to be Jewish. I, I, I support and I take care of my brother, even if I don't particularly like him personally. That's what it means to be a brother. So when the heads of the American Jewish community say that their support of Israel is condition, conditional, they are acting in an extremely not Jewish way. That's the only way I can describe it. And I think it's terrible that they're coming out with this statement. Stowey, in, in and of itself, the very fact that the government even hasn't taken its position yet, hasn't even been sworn in yet, and they're taking conditions on whether they will support the government if it doesn't, if it doesn't follow the things that they like. And I think that's a terrible thing. And they should be ashamed of themselves. I really think so. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next time. Jay Shapiro, signing off. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel. Plus, little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. 
Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India. And I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dots, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dot from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 